uh, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you would be uh, ministering to our hearts and that you would make clear to us what scripture claims about your son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a, a topical series. I just called it You Asked because I, a couple months ago, asked you all to submit questions. And one of the questions that came in was how we should view the, the two natures of Christ, the deity and humanity of Christ. Does that sound nerdy? Yeah, uh, it's, but it's core. It's core to Christianity. It's one of the first things that Christians hammered out early in the church. And it's one of the reasons why some have fractured from Orthodox uh, Christianity that would still say they're Christians like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. If they come and knock on your door and hear that you're a Protestant Christian, what's the first thing they're going to try to talk to you about? The deity of Christ. Now, all these you know, cults and offshoots, they'll tell you they love Jesus. They'll wear the Jesus T-shirts. They'll talk about Jesus all day. Um, Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. Uh, but if you ask, is he God, they'll say no. And what Protestant Christians, and not just Protestant Christians, but Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians have claimed from the beginning is Jesus Christ is not just a man. He's God. And let me tell you, you need him to be God because everything that we just proclaimed up here about granting new life, uh, providing an eternally uh, effective sacrifice to cover our sins, you need him to be God because just a man can't do that and just an angel can't do that. You need Jesus to be God. The problem is many of us, we're so focused on getting application out of Scripture, we don't do the hard work of learning how to defend the basic things and that's how people get led astray. Okay? Can you defend from Scripture that Jesus is God? We read the Nicene Creed earlier. You saw that. Uh, that was in 325 AD. By the time 451 rolled around, another council met. They hammered out another statement because uh, another heresy was uh, being promoted in that day that Christ wasn't fully human and he wasn't fully God. He was kind of partially both. He's, he's kind of human and he's kind of God and it's mixed up together. And so as we read that statement in the Nicene Creed, you see they're already starting to go, no, 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 he's, he's, not, he's, he's begotten but he's not made, you know, statements like that. He's true God. And then by the time the Nicene Creed or by the time the Chalcedonian Creed rolled around in 451, here's what they say. I'm just giving you a snippet. Jesus is... The same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. So fully perfect both, right? Truly God and truly man, acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. So you see what they're trying to protect against is... um, he didn't give up deity and then became man. He's fully God and fully man. He's not only man, and there's some divine things about him, and he's not just God, and he kind of just looks human. Both of those heresies have been rampant throughout the history of the church, and we should be prepared to speak to those. As I thought about how we can do this, there's so many verses that I think are really key verses to help you do this. Um, But I I thought it would be helpful to pick a gospel. I picked Mark because it's the shortest. And just how does Mark tell us Jesus is God? Now, you can do this with Matthew. You can do this with Luke. You can do this through the epistles. 
And some of you are going to be like, man, he left out this favorite verse. I know, because it's not in Mark, okay? And there's probably other ones in Mark that I'm skipping, because we're just going to make eight stops through the Gospel of Mark. And what I want you to see is how Mark, one author, is telling you Jesus is God. Okay, so we're going to take a ride through the Gospel of Mark, strap in, and we're going to begin right at the top of chapter 1, verse 1. The Gospel of Mark, uh, second book in the New Testament, if you can make your way there, and we're going to be flipping through in order. Again, all their stops along the way that could be made, I'm going to try my best to, to squeeze in eight that I think are really prominent, really in-your-face ways that Mark is telling you Jesus is God. The first one is right in the opening verses here. And the first one is this. Jesus is God because only God is to be prepared for. Let me explain as we look in the beginning of the opening verse of Mark. He says, uh, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now he's kind of taking two or three passages and kind of putting them together. Uh, but uh, verse 3 is directly from Isaiah 40. It says, Behold, this is Mark put, making his quote, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way on crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's setting up John the Baptist to come on the scene and prepare the Lord the way for Jesus to come on the scene. What I want you to see is uh, one of the verses that he's quoting, Malachi 3, verse 1. We'll put it up on the screen for you. So I want you to see how Mark makes a little adjustment. In fact, just to keep everybody awake, see if you can identify the slight change that Mark makes. From the verse that we just read, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And Malachi 3, 1 that says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the, prepare the way for me. Anyone see the difference? Okay, Malachi says, prepare the way for me. God is saying, you're going to prepare. There's going to be a messenger who prepares the way for me, God. And then Mark quotes it and says, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, speaking about Christ. So Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill Isaiah and Malachi because he's God coming on the scene. And John is the messenger that was prophesied to prepare the way. For God coming on the scene, and who's God coming on the scene? Mark says, Jesus is the one fulfilling it. So then he quotes Isaiah 40. We'll put this up on the screen. Here's how Isaiah 40 says, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, of the Lord, Yahweh, if you're reading in the Hebrew, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now there are other words in Hebrew that are used like God, small g. Yahweh is always God, right? The great I am. The God, God, the one that we're talking about, Mark is taking that and applying it to Jesus. He applies it to Jesus. John is preparing a way for Jesus who comes on the scene to prepare a way for our God. So right away you see Mark is not writing about the good news of a prophet, the good news of a guy who's really, really good. This is one of the reasons why in the baptism interview I ask, why Jesus? Because sometimes I'll get, because he's a really good dude, you know, and I want to be a good guy. So I figure I follow a good model. That, that's so incomplete. We're not talking about a political leader. We're not talking about a mere human ruler. God himself is on the scene in Jesus Christ, and that's the good news. That's what we announce, and that's what we announce boldly. That's what we go tell on the mountain. So the first thing we see, 
uh, God is the only one to be prepared for in the way that Isaiah and Malachi and others prophesied. And Jesus is the one that's being prepared for. When people ask you, you know, why did they kill Jesus? That's why. Who comes on the scene and says, you know, when God says he's going to come, I'm him. Kill this guy. Who says that, right? But if he was like, no, 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 I'm just one of many. You know, maybe they would have slapped him on the wrist or something like that. But when they cry blasphemy, it's right out of the gate in the ministry of John the baptizer. Okay, number two. Number two, we're still in chapter one, actually. Only God sends the Spirit. Only God sends the Spirit. And in Mark 1, 8, Jesus is the one that sends the Spirit. John is uh, preaching, and he says in verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so let me just put a few verses up here for you uh, so you can see Isaiah thirty-two fifteen. Isaiah is talking about a king that will come and reign in righteousness. Uh, but the people, you know, they're going to have to wait. It's going to feel like a real dry season, a long time waiting for God to come and give them what they need. And then he says in verse 15, they're waiting until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed the forest. And you see it again in Isaiah 44, 3. Notice the spirit is, he's like water being poured onto a, the dry people. For I will pour water, Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So you see the water, the spirit is water in these passages, right? Turning a dry land into a forest, bringing hydration to a thirsty land. One more, uh, Joel 2, 28 to 29. Notice the spirit is poured like water. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, In all three of these, God is speaking. I'm going to give the Spirit. I'm going to be the one to hydrate the land. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour my Spirit. And then here comes John going, I baptize you with water. Water, right? But God baptizes you not with H2O, but with the Holy Spirit. Just like the prophet said, God would. So anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament would say, but John, the Old Testament says God is going to do it. Yahweh is the one that's going to give the Spirit. He's like, I know, he's on the scene, see? So God is the one that gives out the Spirit. Jesus is the one that gives the Spirit. There's numerous verses that explain that. This is just one stop along the way. Okay, number three. Now we're in chapter two. This one might be a little more familiar to you, but I think it's helpful for you to understand that this demonstrates Jesus' deity. In chapter 2, in the opening uh, verses, you have this debate that arises because Jesus heals a paralytic. Some of you remember this story. The paralytic, obviously, he can't move. That's what paralytic means. He hears about Jesus' healing ministry, wants to get in there. It's crowded, like your favorite concert, and you're late, and you're on the outside hoping you can get the last seat, and there's crowds pressing into this place. So these four friends, they, or these friends, they, they take the paralytic, they somehow haul him up on top of the roof, they start tearing the roof apart to lower the friend and drop him right in Jesus' lap and just interrupt his ministry, please heal my friend. They were desperate. And instead of Jesus healing the man straight out, he tells him that his sins are forgiven. In verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Jesus liked to start stuff, okay? He liked to expose things that people were thinking. 
verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Now some of y'all have some background in like Catholic church and you're used to a man absolving you of sins. That's heresy. Only God forgives sins. And the scribes knew that. Now you'll see as we move forward, no one's correcting the scribes like, oh, you misread the Old Testament. Man forgives sins. They're correct. They say, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned themselves, let alone the fact that Jesus just literally read their minds. They didn't say it out loud. But he knows what they're thinking and what they're pounding in their heart. He, he must be blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And here's Jesus saying, I forgive your sins. So then Jesus kind of poses a riddle to them. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Not that you're wrong about only God forgives sins, but to show you that I am the one who has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, uh, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The paralytic gets up, grabs his mat that he's not going to have to use anymore, uh, and, and goes home. Hopefully the friends picked up the mess from the tore-up roof, but who knows what happened there, right? But here, Jesus is posing a question. Which is easier to say, I forgive you of your sins, or pick up your mat and walk? That's a little bit of a dilemma, because the one that's easier to say is, I forgive you of your sins, because you can't see the invisible reality of whether those sins are forgiven or not. But if you say, pick up your mat and walk, and everyone's looking, and he can't do it, you're immediately disproven. That's the harder one to prove, right? So what Jesus does is to prove that what he says that is invisible is true, he does the one that's visible so you can see it and go, okay, if he can do that, he must have authority to do this. And that's Jesus answering their question about how can a man forgive someone's sins if only God can forgive sins. And he's like, because I do God things. Pick up your mat and walk. I can reverse paralysis. I'm it. This is a perfect time for Jesus to explain to them that no prophets forgave sins in the Old Testament. They don't. He's just confirming and proving to them. The miracle is what a lot of us get really wrapped up in. Wow, a paralytic ended up walking. That's so amazing. That is amazing, but it was exhibit A of the greater point. Only God can forgive sins, and I just did it. Okay? So reason number three, only God can forgive sins, and Jesus forgives sins. Number four, still in chapter two. Only God can be Israel's groom. I don't have to spend a ton of time here because we were here a few weeks ago. Uh, but here, you remember Jesus and his disciples, when everyone else is in their habit of fasting on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, Jesus and the disciples, they're not fasting, they're eating. Everyone else is kind of upset. Hey, we're over here starving and trying to be holy, and you guys are, you know, um, eating, eating bread, fish, whatever you have. They're, they're eating. Why are they eating? They should be fasting. And he explains to them that uh, if you knew that the bridegroom that the Old Testament saints were waiting for was here, you wouldn't be fasting. You'd be rejoicing. Fasting is a time where you're hoping for the coming groom. But when the groom is here, it's party time. It's time to eat, not time to fast. Now, the issue there is that in the Old Testament, the bridegroom is never the Messiah, ever, let alone a prophet. Never in the Old Testament do any of the prophets say the coming Messiah is the groom. 
The groom is always Yahweh, always, always Yahweh. Every single time groom is compared to God. I'll just give you a quick example, Isaiah 62, 5. We'll put it up here. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is channeling Genesis. The reason why God created marriage between Adam and Eve is to show this is a relationship between me and my people. And Yahweh is the groom and God's people are always the wife. Uh, This is replete throughout scripture. Some of you love the book of Hosea where God tells Hosea, I want you to marry an unfaithful woman. And he's like, great, thank you. Uh, You know, and so immediately, of course, she is unfaithful. And that's God using Hosea's life to tell the people of Israel, uh, I am the faithful husband that chases you down. Of course, at the end of the, the, that story, uh, she's left on a block for sale, like a piece of property that everyone's done using. And Hosea, the one that was, uh, the one that she was unfaithful to in all of her escapades and whatever she was doing, he comes and pays money to buy her back. And God is telling Israel, you're the unfaithful wife, but I'm the faithful husband who doesn't give up. I'm truly faithful, and I will track you down, and you will be my wife. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and he's like, if you knew I was the bridegroom, you wouldn't be fasting. What do you think Jesus is saying there? They know their Bibles. See, our problem is we're looking for a verse that says, you know, like a graph, a chart. Can you give me a chart, a picture? There's no pictures but the authors of Scripture are banking on you knowing the Old Testament because before the New Testament, all they had was the Old Testament. That's every Sunday school, every sermon, everything was Old Testament. When they hear bridegroom, they know it's Yahweh. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the bridegroom. That's dropping a bomb. And so the bride is made up of more than just ethnic Israel, as, as we've been learning in recent sermons. All peoples have been grafted in, and if you belong to Christ, you belong to God. That should encourage you. Jesus Christ is the faithful husband. And even when we have um, gone astray, as we saw in these baptism testimonies, God will chase you down, not because he's waiting for us to be the perfect spouse. We are not, but because he's the perfect groom. Jesus fulfills that. God defends his bride. God will come for his bride. If you belong to Christ, you're a part of the bride of God. That should encourage you. To be a Christian is to be part of God's bride. Number five, only God can command the Sabbath. Still chapter two. Chapter two is packed. This is at the end of this debate. Chapter two kind of has a series of them trying to trap Jesus. They're, they're um, upset with Jesus. They question Jesus. And this series of questions ends up being challenged with regard to the Sabbath. Look at verse 23. One Sabbath was going through the grain fields. Uh-oh, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to gather food on the Sabbath. But he's going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, I mean traditionally, according to their traditions, uh, that he shouldn't be in a grain field. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those were, who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Here's what Jesus is saying. You remember the exception to the rule in David's life? So who gets to make exceptions to the rules? What do parents do when you say you are not allowed candy 
um, on school nights. I'm making this up, right? You're not allowed candy on school nights. Everybody in the family knows the rule. It's been a rule since you were born. Ever since you knew what candy was, you knew the rule was you're not supposed to eat candy on weeknights. But then there's a church function. Some of the people from church bring some candy, uh, and the kids are in the dilemma of it's a weeknight, it's a church function, I'm supposed to eat candy, but I know I'm not supposed to eat candy. Who has the permission to determine if that's an exception or not? If the kids go, oh, must be an exception, parents are like, no, you're supposed to come to me, right? This should be normal. Some of y'all maybe still need Parenting 101. I don't know, okay, because you're looking at me like, really? I don't know. Okay. Yes, the parent has the prerogative to tell the child when it's time to take a timeout on the rule. If the parent doesn't override the rule, the rule sticks. And even though you're at a church function, you're not eating candy because it's a weeknight. But if the parent says, tonight's an exception, then you can do it. Now, Jesus is pointing to an exception in the Old Testament and then poses to them that dilemma. Who makes exceptions? The person that's in charge of the rules. Look how he continues. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So someone made the Sabbath, right? He's saying some parent created that rule for the children to follow. And that parent decides when there's exceptions because he made it for man. And then in verse 28, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, who created the Sabbath in the beginning? God created the world in six days and did what on day seven? He rested. And then when you get fast forward to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, Moses tells them the reason why we're going to rest on the seventh day is because of creation. God created it. He's the parent that made the rule, and so we're going to follow the rule. And here's Jesus plucking grain, and they're like, hey, what's going on? It's like a child telling the parent, why are you eating candy? Because I'm the parent. And I know for children that feels unfair but one day you'll have the prerogative over your children to decide when they get exceptions and when you get exceptions. And Jesus is saying, I'm the parent. Who created the Sabbath? The Son of Man is his reference for himself. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's fulfilling Daniel 7. And he says, I'm over the Sabbath. I decide when to change that rule. Now, if he were just a prophet, he would not have the authority to do that. An angel wouldn't have the authority to do that. But the one who creates the Sabbath has the authority to do it. Okay, so first one, only God can, can be prepared for. Second, only God sends his spirit. Third, only God forgives sins. Fourth, only God is Israel's groom. And fifth, only God commands the Sabbath. Number six, only God can quiet the stormy waters of judgment. Goodness, I love this one. So Mark 4. Mark 4, probably a familiar passage to you. We're not going to read the entire thing. Uh, but here's a scene where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, we're going to get in a boat. We're going to cross the water. We're going to do more ministry on the other side of the water. And then suddenly they're in the boat. Uh, the, the, a storm, a great windstorm, verse 37, hits them. Waves are breaking into the boat. The boat is... Um, is already filling with water. They're all going to die. They're all going down. They're experienced sailors. We've, we've been in this passage many times. Jesus is in the stern asleep on the cushion. Uh, how are you asleep in a storm like that? Uh, if you are not bothered by the storm, 
you can sleep through it. They all think they're going to drown. Jesus doesn't drown. Jesus can't drown, you know. Why? Because he's over it. So, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. Uh, you know, he wasn't fake sleeping. He was asleep. And he woke up. He rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Now, on the face of it, it's like, wow, that's a really great miracle. Can a prophet do that? Maybe. We never see a prophet do that. But that's not exactly the point. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There's the question. Who is this guy that even a windstorm on the sea listens to him? And he says, shh, and the tempest just immediately stops. Who, who can do that? Now, again, banking on your knowledge of the Old Testament, the only answer there is Yahweh himself throughout the entire Bible. There's this theme running through of floodwaters being judgment waters. Anybody remember Noah's flood? Okay, God uses waters to, to flood. Remember Egypt when Israel was escaping Egypt and Moses split the waters, Israel goes through, and then when the Egyptians are chasing them and Israel's out, he collapses those waters on them, watery judgment. You remember in the book of Revelation, when we're talking about this new earth, how gorgeous it is, how beautiful, how perfect it's going to be, no sin, no demons, no opposition, no sea. And you're like, wait, what? I was thinking a yacht, man, you know what I'm saying? Like a, I, may, I may not have a yacht on this side, but maybe on that side. Well, what John is communicating there is all the Bible communicating that waters are chaotic, deep. Some of y'all have seen images of waters that are in the... the animals that are like so deep they don't get light kind of look demonic right i I mean i think uh it's fitting that bible has used water that way uh you remember the book of jonah jonah's asleep in a boat and that boat is capsizing god is the one sending the storm and they tell jonah how do we get your god to cut it out he's like throw me overboard so he throws him overboard and then the wind stops why because god stopped it so god is the one who can give waters of judgment And the only one that can stop waters of judgment is God himself. So Jesus is saying, remember in Jonah when God stopped the water? I'm him. He's the one that delivers it. Real quickly, Psalm 107, verse 29 on the screen, just another. Here's another scene where people are on the boat. God, Yahweh, made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So Jesus is fulfilling this verse. Right, where you, same scene as Jonah and Mark 4. Sailors are on a boat. Wind is going to destroy the boat. They're all going to die. And then in Psalm 107, God steps in and goes, shh, and the wind stops. And then Mark 4, Mark is going, remember last week in the synagogue, we were reading Psalm 107? Who stops the wind? Who, what is the answer? Who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? What's the Old Testament's answer? Yahweh. That's the answer. This is total escape from condemnation. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no stopping of stormy judgment. That's why Jesus said, if you build your house on the sand, the stormy wind comes, you got nothing. You build your house on the rock, the stormy wind comes, stormy judgment, there it is again. What's the difference between the person who builds his house on the sand and the house completely collapsed and the person that builds his house on the rock and the house withstands? That rock is Jesus Christ. Because only he can stop 
judgment. There is no condemnation for the Christian, no flood waters. We rest completely in God who is over judgment. We cling to Jesus, the righteous judge, and the Lamb who makes it possible. That's why it's not enough to follow a generic God. We all serve the same God, Muslims, it's all the Abrahamic Father. If your faith is not centered in Christ, you do not escape the watery judgment. That's what's being communicated. Conversely, if you are in Christ, there is no accusation anymore. And there is no condemnation anymore. I need to make this point really quickly, but I think we need it before we go to the last two and then wrap up. Uh, Some Christian sects, some uh, Christian cults, supposedly Christian, have seen the divinity of Jesus so clearly they go to another extreme, another error, and see Jesus and the Father in spirit as one person. It's like uh, Clark Kent changing clothes in the booth and comes out in a different outfit. Superman and Clark Kent are really the same person. That's how they would say, Jesus, God the Father, he just kind of changes clothes, you know what I mean? Heresy. And just because we're already in the middle of the gospel, go to chapter 9, I'll just point out one verse. There's so many verses to point out, but this just struck me as I was moving through. Chapter 9, verse 37, Mark 9, 37. Uh, one of many, many, many verses we can see Jesus and the Father, uh, for instance, cannot be the same person. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus says, Who, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You know, how do you send yourself? Clark Kent can't send Superman. He is Superman, Right? And so this, many verses, Jesus prays to the Father. He has conversations with the Father. He says, I'm doing the Father's will. Jesus said he will send the Holy Spirit. The Holy, who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He didn't lead himself. So it's not Jesus, it's not a puppet show where one voice and it's three different puppets. Three persons, one essence of God. Okay, so that was just a quick note just to help you because what we're trying to do is fortify ourselves so that we can interact with people who would tell you otherwise. And they'll take you to scriptures. And if we haven't been doing the hard work, we won't know how to respond. Okay, two more real quick. Number seven. Jesus is God because only God is good. Chapter 10, verse 18. This is the rich young man. He approaches God, Jesus. And he, uh, he tells him, hey, look, you know, I'm pretty good. Um, he starts off by saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is verse 17. And then in verse 18, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one except God is good. Right? Now, on the surface, you could take it like, okay, Jesus is saying, whoa, don't call me God. Don't call me good. Only God is good. He just wants to know, uh, are you there yet? Are you at the place where you realize I'm the one you're talking about? And the reason why we know that is because of the, how the conversation uh, transpires. Now, listen, listen to how genius this is. No one is good except God alone. So then he goes into the issue. You know the commandments. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. But notice he goes to the second table. The first table is about how we behave toward God. The second table of the commandments, how we behave toward one another, right? Love God, love neighbor. He goes to the love neighbor ones. You know the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then the rich young man, he says to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Really? You've perfectly honored your parents your entire life since your youth? 
Okay, all right. So Jesus doesn't argue that point. So Jesus looks at him, and out of love, says he loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Now he takes him to the first commandment. Put nothing else before God. Okay, you say you do all the neighbor commandments. How about the Godward commandments? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. How do you obey the first commandment? By putting nothing before God? By following me. That's what Jesus is doing here. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. He couldn't do it. He couldn't follow up through on commandment number one let alone the rest of the commandments. And the way Jesus exposed it is by starting by saying, oh, why do you call me good? And at the end going, follow me and drop everything else. He's connecting it to being God. You fulfill the first commandment by following Christ, by worshiping Christ, because he's God. Only God is good, and Jesus affirms that. He is good. He should be called good, but this guy wasn't there yet. He was just saying it with his mouth. He wasn't ready to actually follow Last one, number eight. Jesus is God because only God can be David's son and Lord at the same time. This is in chapter 12. This will be our last stop, and we'll close. Chapter 12, verse 35 to 37. This one's a, a little complicated, but it's, I think you can, you can see what's happening here. Uh, in chapter 12, uh, obviously another argument here and then when you get to the end of chapter 12 uh, your heading might say something like whose son is the Christ Jesus teaching in the temple in verse 35 how can the scribes say he asks how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David David himself and the Holy Spirit declared now quoting Psalm 1101 Psalm 1101 I think we have the Old Testament version up on the screen. Here's Mark's version. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus is kind of posing a dilemma to them, and he's saying in the Old Testament, in Psalm 1101, the most quoted psalm and the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of Scripture, all of New Testament, it says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand. So David is talking about his son, someone in his lineage who will eventually be king. And David calls that coming king in his lineage, his great, great, great grandson, he calls him Lord. How is that possible? I don't know about you. If you ever walk into a big family gathering, you walk in, especially traditional families where there's sort of a, you have your matriarchs and your patriarchs, right? The OG representatives of your family, the great, great grandfather. And, um, you know, when I was very young, I was taught when a senior person walks in the room, you stand. Did anybody grow up with that? that was, it was pretty strict. One brother from another country. That's, we, have a, we have a lot of things that we might want to consider returning to. Uh, um, an older person walks in the room, you stand. Imagine a culture where it was, you expected the reverse. You walk in and you ask your great-great-grandfather, Hey, that's my seat. I mean, that's disrespectful, right? So how would David call one of his great-grandsons Lord? He's the greater person in the lineage. 
So that's the dilemma Jesus is posing to them. You, your, your own scripture, you have Jesus calling the coming Messiah his Lord. How is that possible? Uh, he's messing with them, right? He's trying to get them to grapple with this question that Mark has been driving home the whole time. The only way that's possible is if he's God. Why? Because a human king wouldn't refer to a prior king as a subject, and an angel can't hold David's scepter. You can read Hebrews 1. An angel can't do it. Only the divinity of Jesus makes this work. That means Jesus is king, not just a human king in the lineage of David, but as someone with authority over every king in the lineage, including David. So those are eight stops along the way. Is Jesus God? Here's how Mark is saying it. Yes, Jesus is God. And as we think about his kingly role in our lives, we can ask, do we treat him like he's God? Do we treat Jesus like he's got the full holiness, deity, splendor, and majesty as God the Father does? Or is he your homeboy? Yes, Jesus came and he loved and he, was, he told his disciples, you're my friends, but we need to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that he is God and not a really cool guy that taught some good things. And I think that shapes our lives. This isn't just about being able to defend Christianity to a Jehovah's Witness on your front porch. This is about how our lives are shaped by serving one who's not just a prophet but is himself God, when we explain to people what Christmas is about, we're not talking about someone who was born and really did a good job teaching the Old Testament. We're talking about God himself who took on flesh and made a way for us. That's the good news. Let me close with this. In his helpful book, uh, Is Jesus Truly God? Short book, really excellent read. I commend it to you by Greg Lanier. Here's how he concludes the book. I'll read it to you and then we'll pray. He recognizes, you know, we wish we had a verse that was just like, God is Jesus, Jesus is God, and spelled it out explicitly like that. Listen to what he says. The lack of an explicit argument, however, is perhaps the best argument of all. The fact that we don't have an explicit statement, and we kind of have to work it with the Old Testament, that might be the best argument of all that Jesus is God. The New Testament authors didn't feel the need to defend or prove the idea that Jesus is God. They assumed it. It was the inescapable conclusion toward which they were all drawn. This confession of the full lordship and the full divine status of Jesus Christ exploded overnight and was shared by all Christians. It shows up everywhere in the New Testament, even in places one might not expect. It was the air they breathed. Thus, the earliest Christology, what we believe about Christ, is not that Jesus was a man and got upgraded. The earliest Christology is not that Jesus was an angelic spirit being who shifted into human form. The earliest Christology is the highest and lowest and everything in between. In Jesus Christ is found all the fullness of God bodily. The man, Jesus, is truly God. Let's pray. Father, we think of many, maybe even in our own lives, not just out there on the internet, um, people that we know and love uh, that really, really like Jesus but do not recognize him as God and are stuck in lostness as a result. Pray that you would use us, maybe over this uh, Advent season, maybe over a meal, 
uh, some conversation where we can talk about these things and without fear, open up scripture, walk through it and ask kinds of questions like we looked at today. Uh, Walking through various passages and just posing the question, who is this one who can do this and do that and do the other thing? Who is this? Um, And we pray that you would, by your mercy, grant them the vision that you've given us to see uh, that Jesus Christ is God taking on flesh uh, to make a way for us to be at peace with you. As we close in the song, Lord, encourage our hearts to not just believe this, but to live it out and to share it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's close in a song. Mm-hmm.